But a year ago, um, when we were here one Sabbath morning, one of our friends from the community that we've been really excited to be journeying with was here. And we were sitting during our prayer time. Actually, no, I think it was during a lunch time. And I remember I was sitting right at this table. And we were having lunch, and everyone was here, and there was revelry and joy and, and fun. And um, this friend of ours said to me, and I'll never forget it, she said to me, my husband thinks that you're trying to convert me. And immediately when she said that, I kind of like freaked out a little bit. And I, I clammed up and I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I, I, that was like, it was like, like fingernails on a chalkboard. It was just like, oh, boy, I don't want anyone to think that. And so I froze up and I, I said, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not what, what I'm trying to do. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to convert anybody. I don't know, have you ever had somebody sort of think that about you or worry that about you? I mean, it doesn't feel very good, after all, to think that somebody might have some sort of ulterior motives in their friendship with you. The truth is, of course, that, that I, nor I, I don't think anyone in my family or maybe in this church, we're, we're not trying to convert. There's such connotation with that terminology, isn't there? We're not trying to convert anybody. And yet there's this tension. There's this tension because we know that there's something, by God's grace, that we know this. There's something that has gripped us, isn't there? And there's, there's a reason you're here this morning, one way or the other. You have felt compelled to gather with God's people because you have been captivated by something to do with God. But there's this tension. And especially in this day and age, Especially my generation and younger, we are very uncomfortable with the idea of having this, perhaps, perception from others that we might be trying to convert them or bring them into some sort of belief system that they do not subscribe to. As a matter of fact, there was a study that was done in Last March, uh, our missional community, we had a, a kind of like a roundtable discussion that we put on our podcast that was asking this very question, why is it that millennials, that is my generation and, and, and those born roughly from 1980 to 1995, why is it that we don't like to share our faith? In fact, the study says that very thing. This is a Barna study. George Barna says almost half of millennials agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? I think, and I think there's re- good reason for that. As I said, we get a little uncomfortable because we perceive that somebody might have ulterior motives. We perceive that they might have an agenda, and it doesn't feel very nice to think that somebody may be setting us up for something like that. The, the, the author goes on to say, this is compared to a little over one quarter of Gen X. I won't ask for a show of hands. We probably don't have a ton of Gen Xers here today. Uh, and one in five boomers, I won't ask for how many are boomers in here, uh, 
And elders, I don't know where that line comes. Uh, some of you might be elders. And now notice this, though Gen Z teens, that is those of you born after 1995, were not included in this study, their thoroughly post-Christian posture will likely amplify this stance toward evangelism. So in other words, us millennials are very uncomfortable with the idea that I might someday share my faith with somebody in hopes that they would embrace that same faith. And those of you who are Gen Zers, even younger, are probably even less likely to feel comfortable doing that. And so there's this tension. We have been going through, and I, I assure you that we're winding down. We're coming to the end of the series, this like 103-part series on what we're calling viral. Just a quick refresher, because I know some of you have not been here with us prior to this, but there is this prophecy in the book of Revelation that says that God's glory will illuminate the whole world, that his love will spread all around the world and people will have this encounter with it to magnificent proportions. And we've been looking at what is it about this Jesus movement that is able to illuminate God's, the earth with God's glory. What were the characteristics? What are the characteristics? How does that take place? And just this morning, I'm just giving you a little heads up. It does involve actually proclaiming the good news of who Jesus is. We're going to look at a story in the book of Acts that unpacks this idea in the first century context. Just a little context to it. It's going to be from Acts chapter 5. A little context, perhaps you will recall, if you have read the book of Acts at all, that Peter and John, they are in the temple, and they come upon this man who is crippled, and he's asking for money. And he's asking them to help them, and they say a very famous line that, that I think is a children's song somewhere, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And so the, 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 the man who was paralyzed, he stood up and walked. And all people were amazed and they marveled. And then Peter and John went into the temple and they started, what did they start doing? They started proclaiming the good news of who Jesus was. Now, unfortunately, that caught the attention of the religious authorities and they were not happy about it. And so we pick up the story in Acts actually chapter 4, and we are going to read verses 1 through 20. Now, stick with me. It's a little bit of a, a long section that we're going to read. I have it up here on the screen from the New King James Version. But notice how Luke records the story. He says, Now as they, that is Peter and John, spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of them came to be about how many? How many? Five thousand. Now, if you will recall, maybe you, you, you know this already, but in Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching, all of a sudden, 3,000 people came to the faith. And so now we have 5,000. I'm not very good at math. But how many, what's the, what's the gain there? 2,000, right? Am I right? Because you go from 3,000 to 5,000. Did I do my math correctly? Yeah. So about 2,000 came to the faith as a result of this. And it came to pass on the next day 
that their rulers, that is the Jewish rulers, the leaders, the elders and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, this is Peter and John they're asking, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of who? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there. Now this is a very, for people today especially, this is a very uncomfortable thing that they're about to say. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's a very direct and bold proclamation, isn't it? They didn't hold back. They didn't say, well, I don't want to be perceived as trying to convert anybody. Right? They brought it out and they shared their their powerful testimony. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And I love this line. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. Do you think people would be able to tell that by interacting with you? Do you think that they might be able to encounter you? And whether it's through word or deed, they might be able to conclude that you had been on a journey with Jesus? Now, some of you here maybe this morning are thinking to yourselves, well, I don't even know if I believe in Jesus. I don't even know if if I'm, I'm, I'm on this journey with him, and that's okay. One of the things we do here with this congregation is we, we, we want people to be from all experiences, and we welcome everybody in. And we, we just are thrilled that you would journey with us, no matter if you're a believer or you're not a believer. Of course, we have this hope within us that maybe we'll rub off on you if, if you keep journeying with us. But we, we just we love to have people from all different mindsets and persuasions. But the longer you hang out with us, I'm just giving you a warning. The longer you hang out with us, the more Jesus is going to rub off on you, okay? But if you never come to faith, we're not going to disown you either. We're going to love on you and, and, and just want you to journey with us. But these men, they could tell they had been with Jesus. Man, I wish that people could say that about me. They say, man, I can tell that he's some, something's different about him. Something's different about her. Because there's this, this radical countercultural experience that only Christians, those who are, and I'm, I'm saying this humbly, but only those who have truly been with Jesus have this radical countercultural love that is so different that one that what the world could offer. So notice what it goes on to say. And seeing the men who had been who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when They had commanded them to go aside out of the council. They conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, 
that from now on they speak to no man in this name. That sounds like a pretty simple request, right? Yeah, we'll just give them a little rebuke and we'll threaten them. We'll say, okay, be on your way, but never bring this up again. So notice what happens. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all and were teaching the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. Now, this is the punchline. Here it is, okay? For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We can't help it. You're not going to shut us up. No, you're not. You can't, like, keep us quiet about this. We know what we've experienced. We know who we've been with. Now, I want you to notice, it says, for the things we have seen and heard. This is an experience that they had. This was a, a personal journey with a personal God. This was not them sitting in a classroom and reading some pages off a book and saying, okay, I got that information right, I got that information right, I have that belief, yep, check it off, yep, I believe that, I believe it. No, this was a personal encounter with the living Jesus. And so if you and I have been on that journey with Jesus, you're not going to be able to shut us up. It's not a question of, huh, should I or shouldn't I? I guess, well, I guess I'm supposed to witness now. Or, man, I guess I I maybe shouldn't because I don't want to make people... It's like you can't shut a Christian up. I'm going to put it this way. A Christian who doesn't talk about Christ is like a grandparent who doesn't talk about their grandchildren. Right? (laughs) Ah, I'm not thinking of you, Jim, but you've shown me a few pictures, yeah. Now, this might feel a little shameful because you're thinking here, you're sitting here saying, oh, pastor, but I don't do that, so that must mean I'm not a Christian. And I'm not trying to go that direction with y'all, right? It's simply an invitation not to think, okay, how how can I calculate this so that I start talking about Jesus more? It's like, how can I respond more to Jesus' invitation to be with him as a person? So that when I'm there with him, it flows out from me to others. And it comes out spontaneously, naturally. And it doesn't have to be this whole freaky, weird, like, oh, man, that's a religious nut that doesn't want to hang out with, you know, that person doesn't want to hang out with you. It's just sharing from the overflow of what God has done for you. And it may look simple. It may be amazing. I don't know if some of you may be like me. You're like, I don't really have much to share because nothing remarkable has happened to me in my life. And yet the fact that I'm standing here right now is remarkable enough, isn't it? A couple authors have put it this way. Jesus said that it was out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. You know what I'm also always curious about? I find that Sabbath is often the great revealer of what truly is going on in my heart. Now, this is not a sermon about Sabbath, but I find that I have every excuse in the book to only talk about Jesus during this 24-hour period, but do I do it? And you're sitting around the lunch table, and you're talking about, you know, the latest fashion issue, you talk about politics, we talk about sports, we talk about everything else but Jesus, when all we have to do on that 24 hours is to just talk about Jesus. We're given the opportunity, and the heart is revealed by our conversation. 
When you come to know and experience the love of God, the love God has for us in Jesus, when you realize that God loved us so much that he was willing to suffer and die for our sins, even though we were his enemies, when you meet Jesus and experience him pouring out his spirit into your heart, filling you with himself and his love, you can't contain it. You have to talk about it. Now again, you know, I don't want to discourage you if you're here this morning and you're saying, well, pastor, that's not my experience. I don't want to discourage you, but I want to invite you to have a true experience with the living Christ. And I want to tell you that I am not perfect in this whatsoever. Like, Sometimes I wonder, why is it that I can have this rich journey with Jesus in my prayer closet, and then when I'm out with my friends, I, I freeze up and like it doesn't come out of my mouth? I want to know that Jesus is journeying with me all the time, and that I realize that he has already given me all things that I could ever need or want. And God has given me that blessing in Christ. Another author, some of you might be familiar with Ellen White, she says, no sooner is one converted than there is born within him a desire to make known to others what a precious friend he has found in Jesus. The saving and sanctifying truth cannot be shut up in his or her heart. You know, we as a church are one of our great visions for this church is that we would all, each one of us, each one of us, every single person who comes here, who fellowships with us, every single one of us would live out a gospel-centered life so that we demonstrate in, in deed the good news about who God is. And so if we are living and journeying with people who don't know Jesus, how would we be able to communicate Jesus without using words? And so we're seeking to demonstrate the gospel. We're seeking to bless people. We're seeking to enter into life with them and to journey with them and to do it without strings attached. But sometimes that mentality can, can forget that we are also called to proclaim Jesus, that we want to not only be demonstrating the gospel, but we want to be proclaiming the gospel in a natural and spontaneous way. Not, again, that it's forced or calculated or agenda-driven, but this author, Tim Chester, says, social action without gospel proclamation is like a signpost pointing nowhere. It's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? If I'm just, if I'm just blessing people, and I'm serving them and I'm helping them, but I'm never ultimately declaring the reason for why I'm doing it, it's like a signpost post pointing nowhere. There's a story that Jeff Vanderstelt tells in his book, Gospel Fluency. He says, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for Christian Life, Donald Whitney writes, I heard the story of a man who became a Christian during an evangelistic emphasis in a city in the Pacific Northwest. When the man told his boss about it, his employer responded with, that's great, I am a Christian and have been praying for you for years. That's really cool, isn't it? But the new believer was crestfallen. Why didn't you ever tell me you were a Christian? You are the very reason I have not been interested in the gospel all these years. Now, you think it's going one way, but it's going a different way. Check this out. How can that be, the boss wondered. I have done my very best to live the Christian life around you. He said, that's the point, explained the employee. 
you lived such a model life without telling me it was Christ who made the difference. I convinced myself that if you could live such a good and happy life without Christ, then I could too. Interesting. Interesting. I wonder, this is now Jeff Vanderselt speaking, I wonder how often our good moral lives disconnected from any gospel explanation convince people they don't need Jesus. We need to do more than just be nice. We need to tell them why we live as we do. When we live Jesus-like lives but don't share the reason we can and do, we rob Jesus of his glory. He deserves the credit for what we do, not us. It's a very interesting way of putting it, isn't it? That we're here not just to make ourselves look good, Returning to my friend, we had another conversation, and, and this friend one time told Camille, you know what, we just, I just love being around you guys because there's just this energy about you. And you know, my natural inclination is to be very self-deprecating and be like, ah, oh, you know, it's probably, we're just crazy or whatever, or to just downplay it. But just a few weeks ago, we were with that friend again, and she said the exact same thing. She said, number one, my husband thinks you're trying to convert me. And number two, I just love being around you guys because there's this energy. And you know what? Instead of me clamming up and saying, oh, no, 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 we're not trying to convert you. And, you know, we're just nice people. I said, you know what? We're not trying to convert you. But... There is a God that has so touched and changed our lives that, yes, we would love for you to know about this God. We would love for you to have that same experience. And you know what? The reason why you feel this energy is not because we're just nice people. It's because God is living in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit, there's this thing called the Holy Spirit. He's living through us. And I said, we're not perfect. Don't misunderstand me. But I didn't want to fail to give God the glory that was due him when she brought that up this time. And I said, you have to know that the only reason why you feel that energy, the only reason why you like hanging around us is because we are allowing God to live in and through us. Now, that may sound pretty like arrogant to some people. As I'm saying, we're not perfect. We're, as all of you know already, we're not perfect. But we want to be people that, number one, enter into life with other people, and we demonstrate God's love to them through deed. And then, when the opportunity arises, not because we're trying to manipulate or convert or to have this agenda, but when the opportunity arises, we want to give God the glory because this is all about him and not about us. None of us are nice people on our own. It's only as God abides in the heart. It's only as Christ's love changes us. It's only as we encounter the living Christ that we can, as Peter and John said, we can't help but tell people of that good news. So we want to be good news people. We want to be those viral people that live out and when the time is right, proclaim the good news of his love.